This indeed is a gathering of Christians who have come here today, I hope, to worship one God, very specific God, and no other God would you allow to be worshipped here. You have done this because you understand all of reality in all of the universe, life, time, matter, morality, history, family, everything. You understand this reality through this God. The eternal creator is the basis of all that you hold to be real, to be true. And anything, anything at all that does not square with God Almighty through his revelation, you perceive to be false. So that means that your religion is not just your religion. It is your view of reality. It is a view of a reality that Christian apologists now frequently label as a worldview. A worldview is a person's way of looking at his world, a person's way of understanding reality and his role in his world. Our worldview has been called Christian theism. There is only one God in existence, and that God is explained through his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Bible. Yes, there are other worldviews that Americans hold that are false, atheism, pantheism, materialism, many others. And you run into people who believe those worldviews. They've embraced false worldviews everywhere. You listen to the news and you can perceive they're speaking from a false worldview. Or you read a blog and you, you think about it and you evaluate it. You listen to a teacher in many of our schools and they're off base from their starting point. You get into a conversation with a friend and you realize what a different framework this person has in life than I do. Our theistic worldview, the better we understand it, sharpens us. It's so we can discern why other worldviews are off base. Did you know that even from the very first verse in the Bible, God's truth gushes out and begins to mold your thinking as you read this book? and to correct almost every other worldview from the first verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What a powerful opening declaration that immediately confronts and corrects and contradicts other worldviews. Atheism, promoted foolishly by many in American universities, is a false worldview because God was there from the beginning, and he created all. Of course he exists. Humanism, promoted by many organizations and the media, the liberal false church, a church that I grew up in, is all off base because man is not the measure of all things. Man does not get to sit in judgment of the Bible and what it says. Man has no independence in his existence. Man is not even good. He can't even evaluate his own culture rightly. He's corrupted his ways. Pantheism, promoted by science organizations or so-called science organizations, environmental organizations, Eastern religion, and much entertainment in the day. Pantheism is darkness and error because the universe is not eternal. It had a beginning. It was brought into existence, as Genesis 1-1 says. It should not be revered. The one that made it should be revered. It has no intelligence or life or working ability in itself. It was granted all of that. It did not make itself. It's not eternal. 
The universe is not, is not its own cause. Time is not cyclical, coming back and forth and being swallowed up in the universe. It runs in a linear fashion towards who God who started nature and he's going to bring all things to a conclusion and judgment. These are realities. This is a worldview. This is the proper framework for understanding life. Thoughtful people realize that when you base your worldview on the Bible squarely and not modern education, not the media, not Hollywood, not grandpa's stories of old, not some intellectual of the day that lots of people seem to think is just so intelligent, certainly not the false church, steers us away from the Bible, uses the Bible, but really as they use the Bible is pulling people away from faith in the Bible. That's what the false church does. If you build it squarely on the Bible, then you see truth. And as you see truth, it just grips your mind. It grips your understanding of everything. And you begin to apply that to each of the areas of your life. And you see how it fits in a complete, beautiful paradigm that brings glory back to the creator, the redeemer of our lives, the one true God. You are able to judge. You are able to evaluate correctly because you have the right worldview, including today as we evaluate a worldview that we encounter in the book of Acts. That worldview, some have called paganism. Paganism is built on a pantheistic worldview that nature is ultimately God or divine in some sense. Paganism coincides with the belief of polytheism, that there is not one God but many gods. And those gods, where did they come from? They arose out of creation. In other words, these gods didn't make creation Creation was there and creation made these gods. So creation is actually greater and thus I say it rests on a pantheistic worldview. In history, pagan civilizations worshipped many gods. We might read of Thor and Odin or Zeus and Diana. If we're reading the Old Testament and we see Israel's conflicts with neighboring nations, we read about Baal or we read about Moloch. The pagan gods were mythologized, and then they were worshipped in each culture. A city or a town would have a god. They'd believe in their god. They may have a hierarchy of gods. They may hear of another town and another civilization, and that they had gods. And they would not doubt that those were real gods. They just didn't worship those gods. They worshipped their own gods. But there was a belief that there were plenty of gods. Hinduism and some of the religions of the East still hold to this. But it's a growing sense in America today as people abandon a biblical worldview. Paganism is a false understanding of the universe. Even according to pagans, these gods are not really gods in the sense that we think of God. According to the Bible, the gods that they worship are what? Well, we might say they're a figment of an imagination because the Bible calls them idols, and the word idol means something that is vain and empty and has no real substance to itself. But as we read a little more closely, we realize that these gods actually are personifications of real beings, and these real beings are spirit beings, and these spirit beings are wicked and evil and lying, and what they really are are fallen angels, that when God makes all of the spirit world, everything that God made was good, and he made hierarchy of angels, cherubim, seraphim, and different kinds of angels, and some of them rebelled with Lucifer, and they rebelled against God, and they were thrown from heaven, and they fell to earth, but they're real, and they have intelligence, and they have powers, and they have a long age to them, and they're crafty, and yet they also are self-deceived, and they're thrown to earth, and they begin personifying 
gods, and they receive worship for themselves and their arrogance through these personifications that become part of man's legend and history and myths. They sinned, they were cast out of heaven, and now Paul exposes them as demons. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20, for example, Paul writes, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice to these gods, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And that's why Christians were told never to participate in the worship services along with these pagans because you can't worship demons and come to the Christian worship service, partake of the Lord's Supper, and have the cup of the Lord's Supper and worship the true God as well. There's to be no connection between demonic worship and true Christian worship with God. In fact, in the Old Testament, when Israel was told to enter into the land, one of the first duties that they had once they got established in their area was to make sure that all of the high places that worship all of the false gods throughout all of the land were torn down, were burned, were destroyed, were crushed into ash because God is a jealous God and he will not tolerate worship of any of these gods in his holy land. As the church in New Testament times expanded out from Israel and into what where the Jews had been called the Diaspora, and they began to preach the gospel in the different synagogues that were throughout the Greco-Roman world. The Jews had been there for centuries and had been confronting paganism, but mostly they'd not been too successful in overcoming it. And in comes the message of the Jewish Messiah with the gospel message to these little locales. And now the gospel is being preached, and God is adding an extra measure of power through the Holy Spirit in the gospel to transform the lives of these Gentiles and convert them from paganism to worship the one true and living God. That's what we get to rejoice in and read about in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. We are watching Europe, Northern Africa, Middle East, here at this time, Asia, the country of Turkey, all beginning to face the Christian theistic worldview and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find all over the place, no matter the continent, is as pagans heard of this new message, this new paradigm, this new worldview, everywhere universally, paganism collapsed and Christianity succeeded. It's amazing. And we began to see a little bit of it just kind of the start of it here in Acts 14. Would you follow along as I read Acts 14, 8 to 18? Still on that first missionary journey with the Apostle Paul. Verse 8, at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke who when he had fixed his gaze on him and it seemed that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come, have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things. 
to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Let's back up and return to the big picture for the sake of everyone that's been in and out of the book of Acts so far. Luke, our writer here, has been telling us about the progress of the Christian gospel flowing out to the Gentiles from the Jews, going out, in other words, to all the nations. Of course, they're going to confront the gods of those nations. If we backed up to chapter 13 in Acts, from the city of Antioch, the Holy Spirit launched the great Gentile mission, Paul's first missionary journey. It went first to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea, and then kind of went into what we call modern-day Turkey, back then Asia Minor. And you can kind of see that on your Bible maps as you're following along uh, the little routes there, and I encourage you to do that in your study Bibles. Luke also records how God produced miracles through these apostles. Those miracles were meant to point like signs to the truth, saying, if you're not sure this is really of God, let me give you a demonstration of supernatural power, and now it'll waken you up a little bit so you can realize, yes, this is not just these men talking. This is coming from a very powerful God you need to listen to. And uh, the Gentiles would hear the preaching. They would see the signs. Many of them would be converted, drawn out of paganism, embrace Christianity, and have a new world view. This is where we are now in the midst of Paul's first missionary journey. What are you and I supposed to glean when we read an historical narrative like this in Holy Scripture? Well, clearly here's one lesson. Christianity is superior to paganism. Another way of putting that is Jesus triumphs over all of the false gods. Are you excited about Thor and Zeus? You should not be. You should be excited about the King of Kings, the God of Gods, the Lord Jesus Christ. It also shows us that the church has an agenda. When we preach and teach and educate people, they get saved, they get converted, they start to become disciples in the church. They have to leave behind paganism. They have to dump an old worldview. There's a sense in which people coming out of that worldview are going to be confronted and they're going to be and sometimes offended because of our truth. But that's okay. Give them time to think, give them patience. The preaching of the word of God is often going to do that. It's going to offend people with either their worldview or the vestiges of that worldview that they're coming out of. And so we have to work hard at that. It's a dark and a demonic world. We're not living in a neutral world. This, this world is pretty as it is, and you go out and you go shopping and you think, ah, this is modern America and everything is fine. No, remember the world that you're in. It's been for centuries, for millennia, infested with demonic ideas. And they've gotten into education, and they've gotten into families, and they've gotten into cultures, and they've gotten into every place where ideas are exchanged. And all of that is meant to draw people into a false worldview and to draw glory away from the one true creator. Why? Because the, the, the demons that are behind that hate, hate God, and they don't want you to see God in his glory. They don't want you to give praise and honor to God. So let's fortify ourselves for a battle against paganism, against false worldviews. Let's gain some insights. I got four for you from this text today. Four insights. This is the outline if you want to write it down. First insight. The pagan worldview was entrenched. 
Yeah, we kind of already talked about that. But it was already entrenched by the time Barnabas and Paul got there. It's not something new. It's kind of dug in. The enemy's dug in, and it's entrenched. That's basically verses 8 through 10. I'll reread that portion again. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Now here we have a typical pagan town. I'm going to call it, they, Paul calls it Lystra. Did you know that Lystra's location was actually found a long time ago in archaeology, way back in 1885? It's about 18 miles southwest of Iconium, which was also found. If you're thinking about the modern map, think of Turkey, then think of central Turkey, and then think of south central Turkey near the coast, up in the highlands, somewhat isolated from other towns. Back then, it was a Roman colony since 6 BC. Because it was a Roman colony, roads by the Romans were built to this little town, and then it connected it to the other towns. Paul and Barnabas are following along a Roman's road and able to get to Lystra to proclaim the gospel. I will say that unlike other cities that we read about in the book of Acts, Lystra did not really have much of a grand history. You know, when people talk about their hometown, I'm from Chicago, or I'm from L.A., or Baltimore, or whatever, they got a name for their town, and they have a little bit of pride about their city as well, right? Eh, Lystra wasn't really talked that much about. It was kind of a backwater kind of place. If you were from a place like Athens, you would not be impressed with Lystra. One scholar writes, Lystrans were frequently characterized as largely rustic and uncivilized. One um, writer suggested that maybe you should take the word hillbilly and think of what folks might have thought of them back then. Or nowadays we talk about flyover country. But it is to these very simple folk in the world that the gospel speaks most powerfully. Have you noticed that? When you give the gospel, who is it that wants to listen to it? Is it not the poor? Is it not the oppressed? Is it not those that haven't been quite as educated? Not because they're dumb, but because education has a way of leading people astray, right? Because it's not proper education. And it's just the average Joe that often is the guy or the gal that receives the gospel. Would you agree? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that there are not many mighty, not many powerful, and not many noble that accepted the gospel. That's how God works. Well, all of a sudden, this lowly group of pagans here in Lystra, we see become kind of the center of the story. And then in the middle of all of these pagans, there's one guy, and he's the lame man. And the lame man becomes the focus of the Holy Spirit telling the story. A lame man, not just a lame man, but a man lame from his mother's womb. It says he had never walked. He had no strength in his feet. Good. That's perfect, right? Because now we know that when God does a miracle, it's going to be true, right? In fact, we don't even know his name. That's how unimportant he is. However, he was doing something better than maybe everybody else there. Maybe. And that is he was listening to Paul. Which one of you is the best listener to the word of God in this entire congregation? And the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> but I do know some Sundays we're a little more alert than others, right? But the Lord does reward folks that really hone in to listen to the word of God for their own sake, 
for their own life change, for their own correction, for their own edification. And this man was listening and realized that he was hearing a different worldview. This is not something he grew up hearing. This is a new worldview that would rock his world. Look how God uses lowly people to display his power. In fact, I think that this man reminds us of another lame man. Do you remember another lame man in the Bible? Think back to Acts chapter 3, and, and Peter and John were on their way to pray in the temple. Does that kind of jog your memory a little bit? And there was a lame man by the temple, and he's holding out his hand, and he's begging for alms. And, and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. I got a song in my head. Uh, and then in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And God used that miracle also as a catalyst, not to show off Peter's power, but to display the power of what? The gospel of Jesus, right? Well, that's what's happening here, but not by Peter, but by Paul. Paul chose to perform an apostolic sign on him to bring attention, not to himself, although that's exactly what happens, but to the gospel. Paul was riveted on this man. It's like they had a one-on-one relationship where Paul was preaching and this lame man was staring and something happened there where he recognized this man has faith to get healed. And he realized that. Listen to the power of Paul's voice as the healer here. What does he say to him? And I try to create the drama of this, but I, I think I fail. We have all these people around and, and there's, there's no way that if you, if you say these words and they come out of your mouth and something great doesn't happen, you're going to look like a cuckoo, right? He looks at the lame man. Everyone's known he's been lame from birth. So maybe he's, what, 30 years old, 40 years old? And he tells him, stand upon your feet and walk. <sighs> well, that's sticking your neck out. You've got to really believe that God is going to do that. That's divine authority. That's apostolic authority. By the way, you and I do not have the authority to raise the dead and heal the sick. That authority was only given to eyewitnesses, bodily eyewitnesses of Jesus' physical resurrection in the first century. If you're not hand-selected by Jesus to be a literal eyewitness of his resurrection, you do not have this authority, you do not have this power. Once in a while, the apostles would lay their hands on someone else and temporarily delegate that authority to some of their associates. But beyond that, you don't see those miracles being performed that way. But Paul did have that authority. He got it directly from Jesus Christ who gave it to him. Paul was hand-selected as an apostle. Paul did see Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus. And Paul now is using that power not to show off, but to promote the correct worldview. Now, I want to say as a side note, that doesn't mean that we have no power in our Christian life. I don't want you to think of yourself as weak. We battle against evil things in prayer. We have to take the gospel sometimes into new territories. We struggle ourselves against demons when we're trying to do something good, and there's so much opposition or confusion that gets stirred up. We battle temptation in our flesh, do you not? And we have promises. I'll give you one. Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Now, there you go. That's for all of us. But apostles, the New Testament tells us, performed signed miracles to prove they were apostles. 
2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Paul wrote, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance, by signs and wonders and miracles. Listen, if everyone did those, then they could not be proof somebody was an apostle. Now, unlike the phony or fake healers of today who claim to heal, then the person is not actually healed or seemingly only partially healed, or they get healed for a day and it comes back tomorrow or next week. That's phony. That's fake healing. This healing happened. It had to. It was being presented by Paul as evidence of the one true God in a new territory. Paul wanted these people to believe. You can't fool a whole town. Think after Paul would leave and months would go by if the healing were not real. You can't fool a whole town with a fake miraculous sign. It had to be real. Notice the active language that is used here to prove that he was healed. Two strong responses. It says the man leaped up. It says the man began to walk. Well, he couldn't do that before. No question about the healing. It validated the gospel. Now, people don't always believe just because a miracle is performed. There are limitations to miracles. Sometimes the evidence, though, helps pagans see out of their entrenched darkness. And they see what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 describes this way. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, that's back in Genesis, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, just like God said, let there be light and there was light in the darkness of the beginning of creation, so in the darkness of a human heart, God said, let there be light and there was light. How did that light turn on? Well, because I believed in Jesus. No, you had no capability of turning on the light in your own heart. God had to turn it on for you. The miracle was used to get pagans untrenched from their paganism. All right, now we come to the second insight about paganism, and that is that the pagan worldview was debauched. Not only was it entrenched, but it also is evil or debauched. And this we get from verses 11 through 13, if you look at it. Look how they respond. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. And we'll stop there. That's their response. Who do the crowds give the credit to for the miracle? Well, they, they interpret life through their worldview. And what they saw, they have a way of explaining it. And they would explain it by, ah, let's give credit to the gods of old. Paganism, pantheism, there they go. So they raise their voices in their own language. They start celebrating their own gods. They have a false worldview. They don't know what's actually going on. We get it. They didn't. They do not give the God of glory credit. They steal glory from the true God and give it to, they don't even realize, demons. And the demons, doesn't say this in the Bible, but I'm, in, I'm putting this in between there. The demons laughed and enjoyed that. This is debauched evil. You know, when we ask ourselves, what are the worst sins in the Bible? I find evangelicals really confused about that. And I think that sometimes 
kind of influences what they really react to. The worst sins, people, are not the sins we do against each other. The worst sins are the sins directly against God that mar his character. Why do you think the greatest commandment is we shall love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And only the second has to do with how we love each other. Why do you think the Ten Commandments start with you shall have no other gods before me rather than make sure you never murder? Murder's down at number what? I think it's five or six, right? Yes, that's evil, and yes, adultery is evil, and stealing is evil, and bearing false witness, and coveting, but the worst sins are the ones against God. Don't you think that our reaction and the way we train our worldview and the, the way we react to things going in our society ought to have those same priorities as God, that when his glory and his church and his truth are attacked, that's what gets us all riled up? That's what I think. This is debauched and wicked. I read in Isaiah grand verses where God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Does that sound like God is selfish? I will not share my toys with any other God. I will not give my glory to another. It's my glory, God said. And in God, that's good. And if you react and say, you Christians are worshiping a selfish God, man has demonic ideas infiltrated your thinking. Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profane? And my glory I will not give to another. Listen to the jealousy that God has for his glory. But look at these pagans. Look at these, sometimes they're called heathens in northern Europe. It took on the name heathen, by the way, too. What are they doing? They learned about their gods. They believe in their gods. It gives their worldview cohesion. Paul is compared to Hermes. Why is that? He's the god of interpretation. It must be because he was doing all the speaking. And so they're like, oh, but there's Hermes. He's interpreting the will of the gods, you know. And then they call, maybe Barnabas looked a little older. Maybe he was a little bit more out front. They thought he was the chief god. They call him Zeus. You know, the Greeks had a pantheon of gods, and so did the Romans have a pantheon of gods. The Egyptians had their gods. Sometimes they seem very similar. And we're trying to understand this reaction by the pagans. Not agree with it, but understand it. The Zondervan illustrated... Bible background commentary fills in maybe some of the color here. I'd like to read from it. The famous first century Roman poet Ovid tells a story about Zeus and Hermes taking mortal form and visiting an elderly couple in their humble Phrygian countryside home. Now, Phrygia is right there near Lystra. Leading up to this, Zeus and Hermes visited 1,000 homes seeking shelter and rest but were repeatedly spurned, their true identities being concealed. It was not until they came to the home of Philemon and Baucis that they found hospitality. The old couple welcomed the two visitors, fed them well, and prepared for them a place to rest, not knowing that they were entertaining gods in the guise of human beings. The old couple finally learned the identity of their heavenly visitors. The gods then led Philemon and Baucis to the top of a hill and mercifully spared them from a devastating flood sent in judgment on the inhospitable inhabitants of that region. Their humble home then was miraculously transformed into a marble temple. Such goes a local legend near here. Now, if these townspeople knew of that legend, Zondervan concludes this, quote, it may help us to explain their identification 
of the missionaries as Zeus and Hermes and their eagerness to honor them. In other words, we're not going to make the mistake that these other guys did and end up getting wiped out in a flood. And so this is their fear reaction to their gods. There's even more archaeological evidence fitting Luke's description of this area that has come in the form of inscriptions from Lystra, attesting to the locals having a reverence for Zeus and Hermes. I bring that up because we've seen a number of connections in archaeological finds that show the truthfulness and the accuracy of the book uh, of Acts that Luke wrote here. And so paganism was entrenched. Paganism was debauched in the ancient world. If we were to go and fast forward to Acts chapter 17, we would see Paul again confronting other gods as he entered into the city of Athens, and it said his spirit was being provoked inside of him. Why? Because he saw the city full of idols, full of idols. Again, paganism. If we went to Acts 28, there was a shipwreck and Paul was washed ashore on Malta and he was wet and he was cold and he was picking up sticks to start a fire and a, and a, a viper came out and, and bit his hand and all the locals were saying, ah, he must have sinned. That's why he was in the shipwreck and the sea didn't get him and now the animals are going to get him. Pantheistic, you see that? And yet he didn't die and they said, oh, he must be a god. And again, interpreting omens and signs through their worldview. Modern pagans have some of the same commonalities. There are pagans, alive and well today. Well, I should say they're alive. I wouldn't call them well. And they worship many gods. They have a veneration for nature. Many that are in the environmental movement are into that. It's not an issue of caring for the world. It's an issue of worshiping the planet. That's pantheistic. Paganism remains in our world. It has a modern twist, I'm sure. People feel they're adding science to that, but often people are going way beyond what science can prove, calling it science, and then calling you a fool if you don't agree with the scientific theory. In time, some of those theories may be proven to be false or true. The environment and the uh, climate is a major debate now but people are always boasting and bragging about more than they actually know. Wait a few decades and they change their theories. That shows that they don't know as much as they think that they know. But they expect immediate conformity of thought and mind, or you're, you're backwards, you're not scientific. But we have to hold true and see our world through the lens of Scripture and keep an open mind about some things and, and be wary of other things. Nowadays, there are many movies and many games that celebrate quite openly paganism. You parents of younger children are going through decisions. How much of this do I allow our young ones to watch? Clearly, paganism is promoted. They make the typical pagan witch or the sorcerer or the wizard or their gods look very intelligent and kind and happy and helpful and playful and creative. And it's their way of introducing them to this. This is not bad, you see. From my observation, whenever I look, I'm a pastor, so I look, is there any movie uh, for adults or kids that ever takes a pastor and makes him look good? You know, that he looks like a hero or nobleman. They all look like they're mean-spirited, ignorant, intolerant. Do you think that that's a coincidence? How many young people say now, I want to grow up and be a pastor? Because they're being bombarded with, well, these religions like Islam and paganism, look how nice they are. 
Look how good they are. Look how helpful they are. They get along with nature. Now look at these Christians. Oh my, did you see that? Oh, and they were carrying a cross. It's not even so subtle slander, is it? There is a reason no one wants to grow up to be a pastor anymore. And so we see this kind of control of thinking the world, always trying to press us in to one worldview or to another or to another. It's not always paganism. It could be secular humanism or other worldviews. That's why we keep encouraging you. I get, what, 50 minutes here to try to mold your mind. I can't explain all of my statements. I can't go deeper into why I'm saying that or explaining that out. You need to come out to some of our courses and our Bible Institute classes and our Growing Disciples classes and realize that part of our philosophy here is that we need a lot of teaching and training to build us up so that we're not just straight ourselves, but we can help when we run into other people, we can help straighten them out as well. And you're, you're well exposed to what's going on out there and you are corrected so that you see things better and you take advantage of all of our doctoral teachers here. You grow and develop in your worldview. You sharpen your worldview. Sharpen it and sharpen it so that you can, you can accept the things that maybe are not as easy to accept at first. All right, now we go to the third insight. And that is that the Christian worldview is superior. This is the part I like. The Christian worldview is superior. By the way, it's not wrong to brag when you're bragging in your God. Verses 14 through 17. Would you put your eyes on that? Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Notice what he's saying here. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That's Genesis truth. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from the heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. We'll stop there. You can see how evil paganism is in Paul's mind. You know, it appears that at first the apostles really didn't understand what was going on with the townspeople. But when the priests offered a celebratory sacrifice and paraded the animal that was dressed up in the garlands, somehow the apostles discovered the evil deed. And they reacted violently against it. Please notice this. They tore their robes. That's a, that's a strong Jewish reaction. <laughs> that's kind of the traditional Hebrew way of saying blasphemy. This is terrible. Something grievous had happened. Something sacrilegious just Tear your robe in front of other people. Absolutely unacceptable. Couldn't have a stronger reaction against this. They even rushed into the middle of the crowd to stop the whole celebration. Talk about being obnoxious. Talk about being offensive. To godly men, what they were doing was unthinkable. It was evil. Take a moment and think about the temptation that Satan was trying to put these two men into. They were seemingly being given a great honor. Do you realize they were about to be honored as gods in their town? That's the highest honor they could be given. Godless men would have soaked this up. more you say my name, the better. That's a godless man. Remember Herod in Acts 12? The voice of a god, not of a man. And then God struck him with worms and he died. Why? Because he just smiled. Because he thought, that's me. 
and God knew his heart. Some men are very loud and arrogant. They're easy to identify. Other men are quietly subtle and just as arrogant. They're a little harder sometimes to spot. I think the Antichrist is going to be more like that, more subtle at first, and then will turn into that. And you need to be discerning of both kinds. We've seen some pretty prominent persons in America, whether they be athletes whose name becomes so high, or whether they're musicians, nowadays politicians, singers, actors and actresses. They just get, them, they get bigger and bigger and bigger in their own mind. And they get arrogant and inflated. And they think of themselves as something far more than they are. And if someone were even to say, you're Messiah-like, they receive it. Not these men. These were humble men. These men were not here to receive honor, but to give God honor. They did want God to get the glory. Why do you think they were trudging around in some backwater place in the mountains, risking their lives from wild animals? Isn't there a better career than being an apostle of Jesus? Isn't there some better way to make a living than going around and being hated, preaching a message? Of course there was. They genuinely wanted to serve God. They were not even there to get rich. They didn't want the townspeople's money. They were serving the gospel. They were serving the people. They loved the people. They were not divine themselves. Yes, they were connected with a divine message and divine power, but it wasn't about them. Please note also that people in a culture, because of a wrong worldview, can think they're doing the right thing, can think they're doing the moral thing, and can think very confidently that they're doing the ethical thing and they're doing an evil thing in God's sight. People take up a cause with religious zeal, but there is no intent to bring the God of the Bible glory. What are they driving at? What are they working for? Is it so that someone will get into their Bible, study, learn, follow Jesus more? No. Doesn't that already tell you the spirit inside of them? There's no attempt to get people to submit to Jesus Christ or to learn their Bibles better, or so they can worship on Sundays with more vigor, or uphold local churches like this. No, their good cause is for their own glory, or man's glory, or some God or some other cause. And yet these people expect everyone to affirm the greatness of their cause. I imagine that these pagans whipped up each other's devotion that day. It took quite an effort by Paul and Barnabas to quiet them down. What happens next is a strong correction of paganism. In fact, if you look at the way Paul corrects these pagans, I'll tell you, he does it kind of in three steps, or they might say there are three elements that are in Paul's correction of the pagans. First, he reminds them who they were, said, we are mere men. We're not gods. Men are not gods. Men have never been gods. Men will never be gods. The Mormon religion says men will turn into gods. That's not Christianity. They even invite them, come and examine ourselves. That you could touch us, you could look at us, you could see we have body parts, we sleep, we get tired. We're not gods that have come down. The second corrective was they call the people to repentance. Now the word repentance is so important in preaching the gospel, it's not actually used here in Acts, but the idea is he's calling these pagans to abandon their worldview and to repent of it. Now repentance means you're believing one set of things and living in that direction, and now you have to turn completely in the other direction, abandon the old, believe the new. It's a U-turn. 
Turn away from error. Stop thinking a certain way. Stop worshiping those idols. The Bible is emphatic about that. There is no agreement that can be made with a pagan or pantheistic worldview. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell, dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he says, remove yourselves from among them. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. Your old gods were not living and not true. They were vain and false. Now you serve the living God. Repentance, they were called to abandon the old world. And then third, they asserted truth. Idols are vain. God is the living God. Idols are empty. God is the one who lives. Idols are constantly described in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as something that is diminished, something that we can even mock. 1 Corinthians 12, 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. What are these idols? They're mute, can't talk. John, when he concludes his first letter, does so with a warning. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. You think, well, maybe paganism is just going to kind of disappear in the world because we're all advancing in science and stuff. But in the end times in Revelation, it's clear the world will be filled with paganism. Romans 9.20, it says the rest of mankind who were not killed by God's plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They're a piece of wood, piece of stone made out of gold and then fall down before it. And they say, save us, teach us, lead us, provide for us. Foolish pagans still be around in the future. The defense that God gives, that Paul gives of God to the pagans here comes not from a description of the Bible. It does not come from an exposition of an Old Testament text. What Paul does here now is he gives a defense of God from nature. We call this natural revelation. He knows the pagans to whom he's talking to have not read, probably, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses in the Old Testament. And so he brings them before what you have seen. He says there's one God, and that makes logical sense. And he made everything, the heaven, the earth, the sea, everything in it, just a way of saying the universe. All of the universe, he made it. And he has been providing for you all of these years. Many of you are dependent on the seasons and the cycles of life. And you're, you're dependent on the crops that are grown outside of your town. And God has been giving you the seasons and the rain and the crops, the soil and everything. That was his testimony of his generosity and his benevolence and his goodness towards you. In the past, there have been many nations and God let them just go the way they wanted to go. And so the nations, this is kind of the description of what happened after the Tower of Babel. But he's not, he's not retelling the story. He's just kind of summarizing it. The nations went and did what they wanted to do. They migrated away from the Middle East. Some went north and south and east and west. They settled 
And then they developed, and God let them do that. God allowed them just to, to go out and do as they wanted to do. But now we're in the end time. And God is, in, in, in the meantime, God gave himself a witness, but now we're in the end time. And though Paul does not write in this place, proclaim the gospel, he uses creation and Old Testament truth to open up the reality of this new thing that God is doing. Now God is reaching out to the nations, and as he goes on, he's bringing forth a king from one nation, the Jewish nation. And that king of the Jewish nation will be king of all the nations. And that's where the history of the world is headed. Now this idea of using creation to explain to a peasant, to a pagan, a worldview, to give an open door so they can understand it is actually written by Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, creation, so that they are without excuse. What about that guy in the farthest part of the world that never got a chance to read the Bible? Will God hold him accountable? Answer, they are without excuse because God already talked to them. God already revealed himself to them through creation. And rather than worshiping the creator, they discerned from it something, demonstrated the wicked, debauched nature of their own hearts, and rather than giving glory to the one creator, they perverted their way and gave glory to fallen demons and multiple gods. And that very worship of the creation proves they're guilty before God. Romans 1.20. When we get to Acts 17, Paul will begin the same way. You have no excuse. God has been revealed through nature. God speaks all day long through nature, and you are held accountable for that. You didn't hear it right because your heart's not right, because your mind is perverted. You go on in Romans 1, and you see that as their mind was perverted, God pushed them away from himself so they could see less and less and less of the light of his glory. And they were more and more confirmed in their unbelief and in their false worldview, leading to judgment. God, though, by Paul here, is painted as true, as absolute. He is absolute creator. He is absolute sustainer of all things. And he is benevolent and good. That is the correct worldview. And that's what Paul proclaimed. Well, the fourth insight we gain here is that the Christian worldview has the power to supplant paganism. The Christian worldview, or the gospel, has the power to supplant paganism. Now, I see that in verse 18, although it's going to take a little bit of explaining. Look at verse 18. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Almost like, wah, 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 you know. That's not such a great response to the gospel. We've seen much better conversions and conversion stories in the book of Acts so far that could have made you jump up and get excited. Why are you saying this is an example of the Christian worldview having power to supplant paganism? Well, I guess what I'm saying is even in a very weak, labored, and slow correction, 
still something was started there where they're like, oh, okay, gee, we really wanted to fill the short celebration. All right, you know, kicking the dust and returning back into their little homes. There still was a beginning of the turning of the tide. And the point isn't always that an entire town in one day is going to be converted and everyone's like, Jesus, name above all names. Not that it's going to happen that way. It might start with one guy that goes to, you know, a couple of homes and they start having a little more Bible study and then it begins to affect. But we begin to see, even in a not-so-promising situation, the, uh, the foothold has been made. And now the gospel has power to begin to penetrate in that city, in that area. It says with difficulty they restrained the crowd. Culture was entrenched. You know, the gospel work is often slow, painful, discouraging. I remember the early days of our church plant going so often door to door, knocking on doors, so discouraging, so little response, so much antagonism, so much ignorance, so much unwillingness even to have an open mind. Talk about people that are, you say they're seeking for God and all of that. Not, not really, not that much. Their minds are pretty pretty angry and closed and uh, under the judgment of God. I think many missionaries and evangelists get discouraged. They go out and they're more faithful than most of us and they're sharing the gospel at work. And when you hear somebody do that, by the way, encourage them. Because chances are like 19 out of 20, they've had a witnessing opportunity and it didn't go as well as they wanted it to go. Or someone said something bad back at them and it's discouraged them from continuing to talk. Maybe you're in that position right now. But we keep going because if it doesn't happen in a splash, it can still happen. God can still change lives. I know the first time someone witnessed to me, I didn't even know the guy was witnessing to me. And someone said, Tom's never going to get saved. And I got saved just a couple weeks after that. I didn't have anything going wrong in my life. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking anything until God said, you know, this guy's going to get saved. Some, of course, are never going to accept it. But progress will be made. When we look at the centuries, and I'm just going to quickly do this as we conclude, and we think about well, what happened in the decades and the centuries following this story, and you start to think about how the gospel began to spread in all the little towns in Asia Minor and Turkey, and then we're not even reading about stuff that happened as the gospel went east into the Middle East and kind of went into the area we call today Iraq and Syria and into Iran, and then even maybe even the first century getting as far as India, who knows? or going up north into the Armenian area, or uh, into northern Africa. We know it made there Egypt and into Libya and Ethiopia. Every one of these places filled with paganism. And then as we follow the book of Acts, we realize it enters into Europe. And we see first Greece, and then we see Italy, and we hear about maybe it's getting to Spain. But then decades have to go by, even centuries, before the gospel seems to penetrate into middle and northern Europe and get all the way to the British Isles. But eventually, as you read European history, you see with all, Europe used to be entirely pagan. All of it was pagan. The Romans were pagan. The Greeks were pagan. And Christianity conquered it. And then there were the Germanic tribes, and they resisted, but they repented. Well, I'm sure some of the conversions were more out of coercion, but many of them were genuine, and the entire, the entire civilization abandoned their pagan gods. And then there were the uh, terrible Magyars, riding their horses and harassing uh, medieval Europe. And they converted from their paganism. And then there were the feared Vikings, the Anglos and the Saxons, all of them pagan. But as they confronted this new worldview, they all 
bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And Europe, formally, but also in many ways informally, became Christian. Same thing happened in northern Africa, as God used northern Africa to penetrate into middle and southern Africa and bring the gospel there to confront paganism there as well. Same thing happened in Asia as the gospel went out from there. In fact, everywhere the gospel went out, it conquered. The only thing bad we're seeing now is that in civilizations that have had the gospel light for centuries and are now turning away from it, we call that apostasy, it seems now as the light is moving out into other areas of the world, the darkness is coming back into some of these areas that have held the light for so long. And that's what we're concerned about in our country now, that as the church is diminished and as the Bible is diminished and as the authorities and structures are making it harder and harder for us, not easier, what they're really saying is that our time is, our time is coming to an end in terms of uh, our, our being able to shine that light. And we need to be using every moment that we can to take advantage of our opportunities and our freedoms. Now is not the time to be afraid. Now is the time to put the hand to the plow and to work hard. We don't want to have happened to our country what has happened to so many others. Verse 22 and following of Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator or the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Blessed be our creator and our God. Father, we give you the glory for the truth that has penetrated our hearts and that shapes our mind and our thinking. Bless us, Father, as we go out with this truth. May it brighten our souls and enlighten those we come into contact with. Guide us, empower us, Cheer us. We pray it in Christ's blessed and wonderful name. Amen.